Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for uh, giving up your Tuesday evening to be here with Jesse and myself for our first live podcast. We're actually super excited about this and thank you to WeWork. Thank you to Commonwealth Magazine for sponsoring us and hosting us for all this time. Yeah, we are thrilled to be here at WeWork One Beacon. And I have to say, I'm so excited. We constantly joke that our mothers are the only ones who listen to this, but the fact that we have real live human beings watching us record, like... Thank you. I know. this is None of you are our mothers. Like, it's really amazing. I might, I might actually have to take a picture so I could send it to my mom, and then you can yeah, send it to Yeah, if you could send it to parents, me, I'll send it to my parents. And then hopefully your dad won't send any emails to any journalists tonight. You guys, I couldn't make this up if I tried. I found out that my father, who has never lived in Boston a day in his life, has started subscribing to the Boston Globe and cold emails Globe reporters suggesting that they talk to me about things like the Brookline wild turkeys, and he didn't understand when I confronted him and said, like, perhaps you can dial that back, dial it back to never. <laughs> anyway, hooray for parents. So, I love my parents very much, and they're incredibly supportive, maybe too supportive. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you to all of you for being here and supporting us. So just as a reminder and a refresher, I am Jennifer Nassor. I am the Republican, former chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party and current CEO of Reflect Us, a nationwide nonpartisan female-driven political coalition. And I very much appreciate that you said Republican in air quotes, um, which was great. Uh, I'm Jesse Mermel. I'm the Democrat. I'm a member of the Democratic State Committee and the former communications director for Governor Patrick. And we are so excited to be recording our first ever Women's History Month yes. edition. And I think a perfect way to talk about Women's History Month is to have our very special guest, Tina Cassidy, the author of many books, but most recently out just last week, Mr. President, How Long Must We Wait, Alice Paul, Woodrow Wilson, and the Fight for the Right to Vote. And after we talk to Tina, we're going to be joined by a fantastic panel, Tanisha Sullivan, Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell, and former State Representative Keiko Oral, talking about what suffrage meant then and what women's engagement in politics means now. But first, Tina, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. No, we are delighted. So tell us, how has week one of the book tour been? Thank you for making us a stop on your international tour. <laughs> I am local, so this was a fairly convenient stop, but um, I'm off to New York and Washington later this week. Excellent, yeah. excellent. So, Tina, I mean, the book is awesome, by Thanks. the way, so there are there are books back there. Tina is happy to sign the books, sell you the books, however you... She's very them. happy to sell you the She's books. She's very happy to sell you the books. Very and, happy. Um, and you should definitely read it because it's, it's, it's awesome. really awesome. Thank you. So let me ask, how did you decide to write this book? And for those of the, us out there who, who are listening or in the audience who don't know who Alice Paul is... Um, and maybe has forgotten a little bit of history in Woodrow Wilson. Can you give us a little background sure. as to why you decided to write this? Absolutely. So I decided to write this book because in the summer of 2016, I was uh, scrolling Twitter. Uh, you can remember you can that. Blame was the Twitter height. for everything. Oh my God, definitely for this. Um, but this was the height of the presidential election campaign season. Uh, I happened to be on vacation. It was not a relaxing vacation because crazy news was breaking every day. And uh, so I woke up, scrolled through Twitter, and saw this hashtag for Women's Equality Day, which marks the date in August in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed. 
was ratified, I should say. And I didn't really know the story of how the 19th Amendment came to be, which gave women the right to vote. And so I went down a Google rabbit hole and discovered Alice Paul. I was quite shocked to not to, to realize that despite all of my history classes, I didn't really know who she was. Um, you know, my suffrage history dropped off around Susan B. Anthony, who was long dead by the time Alice Paul came on the scene. And then I realized, uh, you know, that this all transpired during Woodrow Wilson's two terms in office and, uh, you know, looked at the Wilson biographies and suffrage doesn't really get a mention, even though Alice Paul was the first person ever to protest in front of the White House. She harassed Woodrow Wilson for his almost entire two terms in office. So it seemed like a great David and Goliath story and one that, you know, shamefully I had just discovered in the summer of 2016. But um, it's timely uh, because it reflects many issues about contemporary society, uh, many lessons for us to learn about today, and we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of uh, women's suffrage in 2020. So when I read the book, the parallels to what's going on today absolutely floored me. I mean, yeah. truly everything old is new again. Right. But before we get there, can you just tell us who was Alice Paul? I mean, like you, so many of us think of Susan B. Anthony when we think of the suffrage movement. By the way, Susan B. Anthony from Massachusetts. Yep. Check out her birthplace, a yes. little uh, uh, home front in Western Mass. But who was Alice Paul? She was a Quaker from New Jersey, and Quakers uh, really practice equality in their daily lives, and she had gone to suffrage meetings with her mother as a child. She was uh, educated. Uh, obviously, Quakers believe that girls should be educated, too. That was pretty unusual back then. Um, she went to Swarthmore, which was a college that her grandfather had founded. And uh, she also got a master's degree at, at Penn before deciding to go to England to study at a Quaker institution there to learn more about social justice. And it was there that uh, at the height of the British sort of militant suffrage movement that she met the Pankhurst, who are, were sort of central to the women's movement there, and uh, really decided then to dedicate her life to voting rights for women. So she comes back to America and applies everything she learned abroad to the home front. So in reading this book, and, and you know, Jesse and I were comparing notes earlier, it really is so relevant to the things going on today. I mean, there's voting rights, there's race relations, there's the talk of nationalism. Um, Russia. There's, there's yeah, Russia. So much Russia. About Russia. 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 You literally yeah. can't oh. escape it. No, no, there's conversation about civility. There are conversations about generational tensions. I mean, I... Democracy, the First Amendment, what's the right way to protest? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me a lot in this was that Alice Paul kept saying, you know, we need to get in this movement, all of us together, and not break off into factions. And and I'm paraphrasing, but, but I mean, that was a big thing for her was, you know, women over party and let's all do this together. And it's so interesting how it breaks down over generational lines. It breaks down over, um, you know, who's a Confederate and who is part of the union. Mm -hmm. And racial lines as well. And the racial lines. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's Alice Paul, I think, just had a general vision that, um, you know, American women should be allowed to vote. And when she tried to bring new ideas to the movement around a federal amendment, that's where you started to see the factions develop. Because there were the old line suffragists who believed that 
asking state by state for the permission to vote was the way to go because much of the South was never going to grant women voting rights. Um, so those up north should just take what they can and leave the South, you know, to to deal with it on their own. And Alice Paul said, well, no, I mean, that's not fair. This needs to be a federally mandated concept. And um, so, yes, it was broken down by the old line suffragists, mostly older women, versus the new generation, Alice Paul, um, who had a famous banner, the young are at the gates, which is such a great slogan, because um, they literally were at the gates of the White House protesting. Um, and then you've got you know the racial divisions where Alice Paul organized the first women's march in American history. Mm -hmm. um, it was really the first protest march in Washington um, in 1913, the day before Wilson's first inauguration. And she invited uh, black women to participate in the march. And when other women found out about it, they weren't so happy. And then there was racial tension. On top of some of the issues that Woodrow Wilson brought to the table, obviously he was the first Southern president elected. Uh, since and I think, Reconstruction. You know, the racism of the Wilson administration, I think, is unbelievable, yeah, I mean, the fully first, documented. The first thing that he did in office, basically, was to segregate the civil service and uh, segregate high uh, schools in Washington. So racial tensions were high. It was a real problem. But I have to tell you, one of the things that I found so frustrating about reading about Alice Paul is... In some ways, she's such a hero, and we haven't really talked about everything she suffered and sacrificed, right? Time in jail, time in workhouses, being force-fed over the course of weeks and like lifelong damage to her digestive system and just her overall strength. And then at the same time, despite the like remarkable admiration you feel for her and gratitude while you're reading this, when she was faced with those racial tensions at that first march, she caved. She did. Right? The yes. women that she invited, she essentially disinvited on the scene and caved to the pressure that she was yeah. getting. And there are you know, other examples throughout the book of time when she, quite frankly, just stood with white feminism right. and did not care about intersectionality. And right. it was, you know, it's always possible for two things to be true at once. And I felt like it was so true that Alice Paul is both a hero and a huge disappointment. Right. I mean, it came down to political expediency for her. She And she also had a real blind spot and didn't understand that, especially for women of color, they weren't just women. There were racial issues that they had to mm -hmm. confront. every. They had to confront racism every day. Um, and she didn't think that she could take on racism in addition to sexism. Um, so, you know, that that's the biggest flaw that she had um, as, as a feminist warrior, you know. And I think she knew it was wrong, but she also didn't think that at that moment in history she could um, make any progress if she made it about race, too. Yeah, and it was interesting because the women that she invited to the march were women from Howard University. So there were 40... Um, women from Howard that had showed up to that march that then she said right, to march with other women to march from with academia. other women and they couldn't march in the front and they couldn't march together they had to be dispersed and that just seemed I, could you imagine that would be awful I mean, for that to happen today you would never see that and these women were well, were well oh, okay uh, yes exactly I mean you would we hope, would you we would, would hope it, that that I'm would never happen however we know that that, that has happened yeah. um, and so I think what was what was really interesting though is these were educated women too so I mean I I was first generation to go to college in my family and I look back and I think my my grandparents were just coming here as little kids at that time um, and so for these women who were equally as educated to be told, you don't have the right. same rights as right. we have, mm -hmm. um, who have had the same privilege, 
that was really upsetting. It was really upsetting. And I think, you know, I think often about the black suffragists who were, had to not only be courageous to participate in the march as women, because that was an outrageous act. This had never been done before. All of these women were putting their lives on the line. But then to, you know, to show up as themselves in, at a time when race relations were very strained and it was clear what Woodrow Wilson was about to do with the federal government. Um, it was a mob mentality on the streets. I mean, a lot of the people who had come up for the inauguration to support Wilson uh, were from the South. So uh, it was potentially violent and, uh, and really scary. So I think about Ida B. Wells, who um, you know, showed up to participate in the Illinois contingents uh, section in the march and was told, well, no, we don't really want you here. And so you know, there were women who defended her and other women who said, no, you have to get out. At the end of the day, she jumped into the march in her rightful place and, in, uh, with the Illinois women. And I think, what amazing courage. Mm for yeah. her, you know, even more so than everybody else. Like, that takes amazing grace. Especially mm -hmm. at that time where yeah. you had, I mean, like you had said, you know, where Wilson, I, and again, my my history left me in, in college, and then my political <laughs> science began, right? So you forget about that stuff, but um, that Wilson segregated. I, you would think that, you know, when segregation ended, that was just something that already had been going on for years and centuries, right? That was something that he started, he implemented mm -hmm. yeah. when he started it in the civil service and in government. Um, and but, it got worse from there. You know, he screamed got worse a film about the KKK in the White House. And that was really yeah. horrible stuff. Yeah. Horrible. I mean, we'll, right. we'll talk about this more with our panel later, but um, it, I found this book to be an incredibly helpful reminder and certainly not the full history, it goes back far from here, but about the understandable tension in feminism around white women and women of color and a history that has been you know, far from inclusive yeah. and perfect right. um, as the understatement of the century. But I wanna, Jen, you mentioned something about how you felt like Alice Paul's was a message of women unifying. Yes. I actually took a really different message from her. I heard it as Alice Paul and, you know, her sort of merry band of women saying, we actually have to do something different. You know, we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it isn't working, and it's time for us to take a different approach, a more radical approach. And it was, you know, you sort of chuckle reading it, because one of the things that they got in big trouble with the elders for, and I think even maybe got arrested for, was um, chalking on the sidewalk. Right. Which, you know, now if we had to think about, like, <laughs> radical, radical awesome activism, <laughs> I don't know that I would put chalk art up there on, on the list, but right. at the my time... My kids would be psyched. Right, exactly. I'm like, this is what my niece and nephews do, and no one's arresting them, but, um, and that's a whole other conversation about what kids get arrested for what these days. Right. Um, but, you know, clearly a different time in terms of what counted as radical, but I didn't read her approach as being it's time to unify. I read her approach as... Listen, we've been banging our heads against the wall. We got to try something new. Well, I think the way that my interpretation of her was that she was the young and the new and the daring and you know, a little bit more how, you know, our generation and younger are, the younger generations, right? And you then sometimes run into, you know, a counter uh, pull where older generations say, wait your turn and be patient. And we're all like, screw that. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be patient anymore. Right. My turn I, is now. My anyway. turn is now. And I've waited all this time because I've been told to wait my time. But like, this isn't changing fast enough. 
But what she was saying was, why can't we all work together? We're all trying to do the same thing. So instead of it being my way or the highway, let's just all get together and try to get this all going. So it's the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, and we get it passed, and we get voting rights for everyone, and not just this half-assed thing that you want to do. Right. Well, there were two problems with that. One was that the, um, the original suffragists, if you will, um, it wasn't just about wait your turn, it was that you're not being ladylike. And if you go out and behave like that, Such we're going to get word. we're right. going to get the yeah. blowback. We would be thrown out of the 19, early <laughs> 1900s. Yes, we, we would. They'd be like, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a big problem. And the other piece of it was that they then began competing for resources. Um, you know, especially in the greater Washington, D.C. area. So Alice Paul wanted to raise money for this congressional push around the 19th Amendment, and the other women were like, well, but that could, you be, that could be our money. So you have to pay mm -hmm. us to be a part of our organization, and it just didn't work. So it's a, that's a sort of a common... Uh, tale of woe in the nonprofit world and I, in, the, I mean, in the activism right. world, right? You're Everyone's talking my language. Yeah. Fighting for the same dollars. Yeah, all turf wars. Terrible. Yeah. And yeah. Let's go on that, by the way, yeah. the money. So for those of you who have not read this book yet, it is astounding that they were raising, at one point they raised a million dollars, right? Yeah. They were trying to raise a million dollars. They had $27,000 in this new organization in their account. I mean, this is back in 19, in the early 1913. That yeah. is a big money. Mm -hmm. um, but these women all seem like they were women who came from affluence. They, yes. they were all not just college educated, but they had masters and they had law degrees and they had PhDs. I mean, and in were, so many ways were connected to powerful families and sometimes powerful men. Like, let's be honest that in some cases they extracted some of their power by juxtaposing themselves with Absolutely. powerful fathers or husbands. Right, ex-husbands. I mean, the Marble House in Newport was mentioned. Um, but then we also had, how about company number two in Massachusetts? Yeah, I mean, so there's a, there was a big, uh, very vocal group of suffragists from Massachusetts who were willing to get arrested and, and protested. Um, there were amazing um, sort of events on Boston Common. Uh, they greeted or harassed Woodrow Wilson when his boat pulled into the port here um, during the war. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Massachusetts women were, were, uh, were totally on board for all of that and very good at raising money. But one of the interesting tactics that Alice Paul put into play to raise money was she created a newspaper. And you know, solicited or two cents an issue. These days, or, she would have had a podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, she right? would have. Yes. So I think she sold like a thousand newspapers in the course of a month. Hey. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we've made it up to a thousand. She probably has higher readership yet. than we have listenership, but that's okay. <laughs> but it was a brilliant strategy. She was both making money and getting her message out there, right? I often think about what Alice Paul's Twitter feed would look like. But, um, but oh, the newspaper was pretty darn good. It was very meaty. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, just to hammer home the Boston part, I was so surprised reading this because I feel like I'm a pretty big like Boston history nerd. You write in here that literally the last imprisonment of the suffrage movement was at the Charles Street Jail. Yeah. I so know. like, if you go get a drink at the Liberty Hotel, you are in like a feminist landmark. I know, right? I right? should get a free drink. Over you there. should get free drinks. I, I think that I think I think that's the next place for book sales. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Set up in the lobby of the Liberty. Good idea. Excellent. We'll find out what cell they were in. Right. That's the room. You I'm just in. gonna say from the scene over there when I have been over there and seen it, I wouldn't say feminism oh and oh. feminist mentality <laughs> is the thing that there's. Being, that's being promoted. 
That's true. Apparently, this podcast is not brought to you by the Liberty Hotel. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, if you'd like to sponsor, I'm sure we could figure something out. <laughs> no, but the, I mean, I had no idea. And women from Brookline going down to D.C. and getting arrested, like right. there was a very real Massachusetts connection. There was, and it's also interesting to think about the connections between the original abolitionists, and that was a very strong movement here in the Boston area as well, and suffrage. Um, and interestingly, there was a big split um, because um, a lot of white women who were abolitionists originally were upset that black men got the right to vote before them. So you can trace the racial schism even back further mm -hmm. in history to the 15th Amendment, and uh, you know it never totally recovered from that. Yeah. So I'm sitting here looking at your um, perfectly on-brand nail polish. Tina is wearing purple and gold, suffrage <laughs> colors, nail polish. I mean, way to just be on message. But I don't even get my nails done, so I just was having I fun love it. this week. Yeah. But it made me think, like, Alice Paul and her crew, they were marketing masters. Yes. I mean, they literally protested in front of the White House carrying banners with Woodrow Wilson's own words right. on them and got themselves arrested mm -hmm. for showing the president's own right. words. I mean, they were just so smart, picking the right day to protest, knowing that it would get them attention. I mean, talk to us a little bit about how savvy they were. It's why I think Jen's right. Her Twitter feed would have, like, crushed it. Yeah, it would have been amazing. Uh, there was... a. It was sort of next level creativity. There were always thinking about what the next campaign could be, whether it was driving a car cross country, whether it was uh, collecting signatures at the World Expo, um, you know, delivering scrolls of signatures to Congress, having a woman on a white horse at the front of the um, and waist. making sure she was pretty. Of course, right. yep. that was important because people thought that any woman who was advocating for herself would not be very feminine. And so Alice Paul literally wanted to change the face of feminism. And that meant putting a pretty face on a white horse. Yeah. Um, and people loved it. Yeah. And then that woman on the white horse died as part of a, a Western campaign. And then the cause had a martyr, so which was also milked for everything. And she had some interesting quotes, right? Um, was it Inez? Inez right? Milholland, yeah. Milholland. And she, um, I mean, but she was a pioneer really at a time of pioneers, right? Because she went across the country. Mm -hmm. Didn't she fly in a plane? Right? That in was Lucy Burns, who flew, flew Lucy around Burns was the other one. in right. Seattle uh, from a biplane and dropped leaflets all over the place. Which yeah, and when you read the book, marketing. there's a great picture of her, yeah. you know, with her goggles, but she's also like wearing the suffragette sash right. in the plane. It's really yeah, great. And then Inez said, um, if she could inspire mothers living in the mountains to sympathize with the cause, it could change the future. Right. And so, I mean, that was their, their view, was not just my friends in my backyard, not just the people that I'm talking to every day, but we need to go and touch. I mean, this is like early grassroots campaigning for their, for their campaign, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was amazing. And then she also said, we need to show that feminists are more, we, we want to show feminists are not just the homely women, but we want to show that they're beautiful, they're smart, they're married, um, yeah. they're a little bit more, which right. was also really, um, you know, outside of their their time. Yeah, yeah, and we can have a whole other conversation about, like, why are women only valued if they're beautiful, of if course. they're married, if they're adjacent well, to a man, change. like, right. if you <laughs> offer some sort of visual value to the world, right. I mean, that's just a whole other can Well, of that's where the political expediency comes into play, right? I mean, they were just out there to get people to change their minds and allow women to vote. I mean, they kind of didn't care how they got there. 
Um, they just needed to raise awareness and be accepted. And yeah. that created lots of other issues that we're still grappling with today. But to your point about grassroots work, I mean, this thinking about how you traverse the country, you know, in the days of the horse and buggy is pretty astounding. I mean, women didn't really even drive cars. So the fact that, you know, a few of them were willing to drive cross country in a car was amazing. And they, uh, they used trains and they would have these whistle stops all along the way. I and mean, they basically hit all of the states um, that did not yet have the vote. And that was tremendously expensive time-consuming, arduous. I mean, these women were collapsing out on the trail, and, and one woman died. Um, so it's, it's really remarkable what they sacrificed to get about, the message out. Can you also talk about how they were campaigning against Wilson? Yeah. And what, what I mean... Yeah, they were very politically they, savvy they in addition to marketing savvy. savvy. Yeah. Yeah, so on the political side, uh, up until Alice Paul came on the scene, uh, voting rights for women was considered a nonpartisan issue. Right? And, and that's totally fair and understandable. So Alice Paul said, great, I'm all for nonpartisanship too. She was a Republican, by the way, and Woodrow Wilson was a, considered a progressive Democrat, even though they were like both the opposite of those things. <laughs> um, but that's semantics and history. Very um, loose definition of both progressive and Democrat. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Sure. Um, but you know, what, what happened was, Alice Paul said, why are we kind of being all gentle about the partisanship issue when we know it's Democrats who are in power who are blocking this? So the Democrats had control of the White House. They had control of Congress. So she said, why don't we just take it to Democrats? We'll go to their convention. We'll protest there. We will target every congressional district and, and um, you know, work on the Democratic governors and so forth. And it ended up being a brilliant strategy. She created pain for the Democratic Party. And it worked. It took a long time, but it worked. Yeah, and, and Wilson moved and ended up, I think, probably against his will, campaigning for the amendment and um, probably not being an enthusiastic advocate, but being an advocate nonetheless. Right, yeah. I mean, people say, oh, can you talk about Woodrow Wilson's journey changing his mind? And I'm like, well, how about Alice Paul backed him into a corner, <laughs> and then he had nothing to lose because he was a lame duck president and the Democrats were going to get crushed. Yeah, and when you, you'll read in the book, because I know everyone's going to rush to the table at the back of the room or to Amazon or to your local independent bookseller and buy this. But when you read in the book, his early writings when he was in academia before he entered politics, oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, when this man had the chance to say what he actually mm. thought, I know what you're about to see. I see the face you're making, Jen. Go ahead. Okay. Ladies, hang on. He actually wrote a letter to his wife-to-be that called her little girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the woman still married him. Yeah. <laughs> Can any of you imagine that today? I mean, horrifying. And then she died, and he did the same thing to the new wife. Exactly, yes. That was kind of scandalous. He didn't wait too long between wives. And, yeah. and then there might have been a girlfriend in there. Yes. Yes. Long-time girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then irony of ironies, not that we wish ill upon anyone, but after he took ill and wasn't really able to fulfill the duties of the president, of course, it was his much younger second wife who, for all intents and purposes, was acting as president of the United States toward the end of his administration. And it's ironic also because she was anti-suffrage herself. Mm, right. So she was an independent woman before she met Wilson. She ran a business. She drove a car. Um, and then she just thought, well, women shouldn't have the right to vote. Why should they? And then she's running the government, you know, within a few years. So it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Well, on that entirely confusing note, 
Uh, Tina Cassidy, the author of Mr. President, How Long Must We Wait? Alice Paul, Woodrow Wilson, and the Fight for the Right to Vote. Thank you for being here. You're going to join us for the yes, panel. thank you. Uh, we're going to try and bring this conversation into modern day. And if we could pause for just a moment while the Crackerjack Massing Commonwealth podcasting team resets things for a moment, we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, too. Thanks, Tina. Yeah. Well, we are on part two of our conversation here. And so we have some esteemed panelists with us this evening. And we are super excited to have this crew here because these are dynamo ladies. So um, I'm going to start introducing them. From the end over here, we have Tanisha Sullivan. Tanisha is currently the head of the Boston NAACP. We have um, City Council Pre Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell. Thank you very much. We know that you. you're just a little bit busy. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Tina Cassidy, the author of our book, and Keiko Oral, former uh, former state representative, and she is currently uh, still holding the title of the Massachusetts Republican National Committee woman. So we are so happy to have you all here with us this evening. And we, we just want to get started by, you, you heard this. You heard you know, about this book, and, and we've been discussing it. And um, it's interesting. I mean, we're in 2019. We're 100 years into this. What, do you, what are your thoughts? I know. Which are you Okay. <laughs> I'll go. Um, so I think it's fantastic, Tina. I haven't read the book, um, but I'm definitely now looking forward um, to, to reading it. So we could not have planned this like any better. I am on my way back from DC um, where I was participating in a legislative conference for Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. For those of you who do not know, as Tina was sharing about those black women who were marching on March 3rd in 1913, the vast majority of them were members of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. In fact, that particular suffrage march was the first public act of my organization. Um, and Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, both of them were members. Um, and so we continue the legacy today. Um, as I mentioned, just coming back from DC, continuing to talk about the issues that are so very important, not only to women and our families, but specifically to black women, and specifically focusing on the intersection of race and gender. So I can't wait to read the book. Um, but that being said, certainly we've come a long way. Um, but we still have so much more work to do, specifically when we think about the lack of representation, political representation of black women and other women of color um, in some of these political offices, present company excluded, <laughs> um, we still have a whole lot of work to do. Um, and what we know is that when there's rich diversity in our elected offices, talking about policy, talking about legislation, the conversation absolutely changes and the legislation is even better, the laws are stronger, and it works even more effectively for all of the people. So I look forward to us delving deeper into that, and I'm going to hand it off to you. Andre. Thank you. 
Um, and thank you both for having uh, having me and, and, and creating this space for us to have this conversation. Um, and why I love being on panels with this one here is we don't speak in code, we, we just speak straight to the point. Um, and thank you for writing this book. We were just talking about, uh, I'm a Princeton alum, and so I know and have heard about many stories related to Woodrow Wilson, including uh, the Woodrow Wilson School that is named for him, and there's been a push by many to change that. Um, in addition, sort of, you know, he had a record, right, before he became president. He had a lot of writings. Um, read some of those. And it's, no. that's right, They're, and they were, they were explicit and they were troubling at the time. Um, but I think one thing I'll pick up on, you know, I'm the first black woman to serve as the Boston City Council president. And there is, while I, I sit with that, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Okay, love you. Um, that's an incredible honor. Um, and then I'm gonna add something that I think you can also clap on. I have this incredible honor and privilege to represent the most diverse Boston City Council in the history of the city of Boston with six women of color. Um, and I have to acknowledge Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who was the first woman of color to break that barrier, but that was only like 10 years ago. So we have tremendous work to do, um, and we do it by working as a collective across racial lines, across um, gender lines. And by having diverse representation, it absolutely changes the conversation. And we're seeing that every single day on the council, whether it's conversations around criminal justice reform, you know, I got to the council and I shared my story of I ran because, largely because of the loss of my twin brother. You know, it was 29 years old, cycles in and out of the criminal justice system, dies at the age of 29 while in the custody of the Department of Correction, which oversees our prisons. And I asked one question, how the heck does that happen in the city of Boston? How do two twins in the city of Boston have such different life outcomes? I leave BPS schools, Boston Latin School, go to Princeton, go to UCLA Law School, work for Governor Patrick as an attorney. Um, we then start talking about criminal justice reform at the local level, reentry services. Other counselors are bringing their personal stories into the space, um, and you don't get that if you don't have, frankly, not if you if you don't have other people represented around the table. Um, it can't just be white men. Yes, you have to be allies in this, so thank you very much for clapping to that first point. I appreciate that. Um, you're right, it's important, but at the end of the day, we change the conversation um, by bringing these experiences to the table to inform the policy work. And I'll just add, women are bold, we are mothers, we are caregivers, we take care of everything, frankly. Um, and we don't leave that behind when we get, you know, sort of come into the, the uh, houses of power. Um, so we have impact, we don't waste time. Um, and no offense to the men, we get things done. Um, we move things. Um, and this whole political consideration as to why we're not moving the needle faster on different things, um, I think if you have more women, you'll suddenly see we move things a lot faster. So I'm just gonna own that and celebrate that tonight as well. So thank you for having me. Um, so thank you so much for this opportunity. This is a great celebration of Women's History Month. And um, again, I echo the, the sentiments of my colleagues, wonderfully stated that we need to have the diversity discussion continue. We need to have the discussion about women participating in all levels of government continue. 
And so this is a this is a great opportunity, and I think that your book is a is a segue to opening that discussion. So thank you for for writing it. So one of the things I want to point out too is that um, in the work that I do, it's very female focused. So it's not just across gender lines and racial lines, but it's also across party lines. Because in 2018, what we saw is that Democratic women were were, and I'm not saying this as the former. Massachusetts GOP chair. I'm saying it as a woman in politics. So women, you know, woohoo! Took us 26 years to have the year of the woman, and guess what we got? We got three extra percentage points. Excellent. Guess what? That's nothing. We did nothing. So if we, so we went from 20 percent in Congress to 23 percent in Massachusetts, which is supposed to be the super progressive state. We're at 28.5 percent whether it's statewide offices, um, locally, locally, state reps, state senates, we're at 28.5%. So we're still not anywhere near a number of equal representation across gender lines. And so I think one of, that's why I kept focusing on this unity aspect of where I saw Alice Paul going, because I think if we all work together, there's an opportunity to say, maybe for a second we put the partisan stuff aside, and we all as women work together across racial lines and across you know, age differences, generational differences, and say if we all can work together, maybe that number of 28.5 can go up to 30.5 or 35.5, Women make up over 51% of the population, whether you're in Boston or you're in Oklahoma. <laughs> right. And so I think that's one of the great things about the book is pointing out it's not that it's a 2019 issue. It was an issue back in the early 1900s. It was an issue in the 1800s. And I think women also, and we love you guys, love you. You know, we couldn't do things like you know, have kids without you. So, I mean, or take out garbage or kill bugs. I mean, you know, but there are oh, other things. No, I'm I kidding. I take out my own garbage and kill <laughs> I do, my own I do bugs. too. And you know those city bugs? Those suckers are big. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, we, we, you know, I just think that equal representation means that if women make over 51% of the population, we need more women. What are we gonna do about it, ladies? Well, I, I, I was sort of like, pass me the mic, but I think we would all agree we set, I think, the bar too low. And we've been setting it too low for far too long. And whether it's on issues we want to categorize or as, as women's issues, or for example, the district I represent, largely Dorchester, Mattapan, predominantly a district of color, we don't have time to waste. Whether it's on economic development or education issues. And I think we need to set the bar high, and frankly, High, for, for me, it's not high. From other, other people's perspective, it might be. But it's where it needs to be. If we are the majority of population in the city of Boston, then the Boston City Council should be seven, not six, of women, right? Um, if we are 52% of the population, our law enforcement agencies should be reflective of that. They're nowhere close. Um, and when we are measuring whether or not we are being successful, we have, we tend to use, at least from the government space, metrics that are far too low, and then we pat ourselves on the back to celebrate us reaching that metric, and I'm saying no, throw that out the window, that's the wrong metric. See, Andrea, now I hear you talking like Alice Paul. Oh. 
right? Bold, bold, courageous. More. But I, but I really do think you know to bring it back to Tina's yeah. book. I so connected with this issue of yeah. civility and generational tension, right? We we are constantly having a conversation, not just in Massachusetts, but around the nation, about what is a civil and appropriate way to protest if you are inclined to protest, right? Mm-hmm. And and how do you handle this sometimes wait your turn attitude with the fact that, you know, you talked about that urgency. We see young people, not just women, but young people feeling a real sense of urgency around a whole host of social issues now. And some people, it feels like want to pat them on the head and say, wait your turn. And, you know, everything I'm hearing you saying, like bolder, bigger, faster, it feels like we're having the same conversation in some ways about the exact same issues that Alice Paul had a hundred years ago. Right. Well, it was, it was, it was super interesting because just when I started working on this book, you know, Black Lives Matter was really, um, making a splash and, you know, the Colin Kaepernick, um, uh, protests that's come up in the last couple years, you know, people thought standing in front of the White House holding a sign, um, which Alice Paul, her silent sentinels did, um, was outrageous and unladylike and uh, unpatriotic. And, you know, they were attacked and thrown in jail for long terms. Um, you know, we're always debating what's the right way to protest. I mean, I'm sorry, protest is supposed to tick people off. That's the whole point of protest. And, you know, I mean, if, if it's a peaceful protest, whether it's, you know, taking a knee or standing silently with a sign, um, whatever's going to get people to open their minds to a new idea and understand how change happens, um, change doesn't really happen without protests. I think that's one of the big things that I learned in this book. And it's especially true for women because we've always been taught you have to behave, you have to be ladylike, you wait your turn, you know, your smile, yes, um, make sure you look good. Um, Or a suit. Right. All of those, all of those things. Right. Right. So how do we how do we say, okay, protest has to happen. Um, You know, it's great to come up with new and creative ways to protest. Um, You know, there's so much inspiration in this book for new ideas to protest, even though they're a century old. We should like bring some of them back. But yeah, Um, I just want to point out as I was spewing off numbers of of legislators and and around the state um, what our numbers are I just want to point out Susan Wood is at the back of the room over here and she has an organization called political sisterhood so go to politicalsisterhood.org correct or com okay Um, and she has a great map of who's elected in Massachusetts and she's been working on that and it's some good creative content um, to go look at and to see the appalling numbers in our so-called, you know, very progressive state. Um, but Keiko, I want to turn to you. So, I, I mean, you were in the legislature, and I think of the Massachusetts legislature as a bunch of older white dudes. Um, there are some younger. There's white some dudes. some younger white dudes. <laughs> But I mean, you know, going back to what Andrea was saying, if we want to make some changes, right, in law enforcement, that was a great example and that made me think of this, don't we need more women in the legislature to promote bills to change the composition of, of, of what some of these agencies look like? Um, don't we need more women to promote issues, to promote the things? They're not women's issues, right? So, so we think women are going to get elected so that way we can, you know, protect certain, you know, the right to choose or whatever that is, right? I don't think that that's the case. I think it's the 
we need more women so that way we could change some rules that were drafted by men. So what was your experience in the legislature, not only as a woman, but as a woman of color in the legislature? So I was elected in 2011, and I became the first Asian American woman to serve in the House of Representatives. And, 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 and with that um, came a, a great sense of, of responsibility that um, we're all setting an example for those who are coming behind us and and wanting to to do the very best that I could but what I found was that as a petite um, woman of color it was difficult to get the attention that you deserve and that is needed and so I had to learn how to make sure that my voice was strong, that my voice was, uh, was well thought out. It felt like I had to do more work than my, perhaps my male colleagues. And I would think that many of the, the audience participants would say, yes, I have to do uh, way more work than my my male counterpart. So, so that's where I think the legislature has uh, opportunities for women to succeed because certainly there are women succeeding. I felt like I was successful in the legislature, but it, it comes with a, a hard, hard work ahead of you. And, and I, I was thinking, oh, well, what are we going to talk about? Are we going to talk about Kate Switzer, who, who ran the Boston Marathon? Because that's what it felt like in the legislature. Like, like we are running uphill. We, it, sometimes it feels like people are trying to drag us off the course. Um, she was the first woman to, to enter into the Boston Marathon. And, and, I, and, and yet she persisted. She prevailed. She kept, she kept on. And that's what I think we're all saying is that um, as, as women leaders, we're going to press on. So we talk a lot about men holding women back, but I think we need to be frank about the fact that <laughs> Tanisha's like, pass the microphone. I, I have some things to say. So I, obviously there's a lot in the book about, um, frankly, the 100 years ago version of white feminism, right? Which we've heard about all through the civil rights movement and how you know, the women's movement of the 70s was overwhelmingly white in its public face. Um, you know, I had lunch just today with a good friend who happens to be a black woman who doesn't work in politics, but who in the course of just having lunch with a friend and venting was talking about how it's white women who have presented some of the biggest challenges in her career and been some of her biggest detractors. Like, I think we have to have a really candid conversation both tonight and obviously like throughout society in general about our sort of failure at intersectionality as women in lifting up other women. Right, so I think that there are two things. Um, one, I, I wanna say it's women with women, period. Um, I, I think that we do need to have an honest conversation as women, generally speaking, about how we support or do not support one another. Um, you know, we can talk as much as we want to about increasing our representation and we can say we need more women and we need more women to vote. Well, women are not always voting for women. And in fact, 
women are sometimes harder on other women, generally speaking, when it comes to, um, you know, kind of evaluating those who do step up and step into leadership. And so, and that's something that we have to own as women, just period, end of story. And it's real and it is holding us all back. And then when you layer onto it, the intersectionality of race or um, sexual orientation or ability or, or, or. It gets even more complex. Um, yes, I would say that, and, and we talked about this, um, we, made, we were very intentional about talking about this at the Women's March this year, and I'm looking for my people. <laughs> oh, Cindy left, okay. <laughs> um, we were very, we were very, Cindy from, um, from Jal, Cindy Rowe from JALSA, we were very intentional about talking, um, focusing on intersectionality this year at the Women's March, because yes, Jesse, um, you're right. When we talk about, typically when we're talking about the advancement of women, we're talking about the advancement of white women, period. And we could even go a little bit further, maybe say white women of a certain means. We're not talking about poor white women. Okay. And cisgendered, able-bodied, the whole nine All yards. of that. Yep. And so it is so very important, I believe, for those women, specifically white women, who believe, <laughs> who are believers, um, who are fighters, who really want um, women, generally speaking, to achieve, um, that you speak up. Um, you know, one of the things that I said at the Women's March this year is that the reality is that white women will likely achieve justice much more quickly than the rest of us. And when white women speak, people's ears are more inclined to your voice than they are to mine. And so it is critically important that, um, that, our, that, that white women in this struggle that you speak up. You know, I, when they talk about pay equity at work, Challenge that. Say, okay, pay equity at work, yes, but what does that mean for black women and for Lat Latinas and for Asian Pacific Islander women? You know, when they talk about, generally speaking, increasing um, uh, gender diversity, what does that mean for um, women of color in C-suites? We need you to be allies with us in this fight and not forget that it's about, it is truly about all of us. I don't think you're the only one with something to say on this. Andrea? <laughs> I mean, I, I think uh, a, a bright spot or a good thing is I wouldn't be sitting where I am. Um, you know, I've challenged a 32-year incumbent when I joined the Boston City Council, had no name recognition, was not connected to the political space, and people were like, yeah, good luck with that. Um, and it was women, a lot of women, but especially white women who said, this is a good thing. We want you to win this. We live in the city of Boston. We want the council to be diverse and, and to have more women, and we're gonna support you. We're gonna take a risk on you. And some of my early supporters that donated to my campaign, and if they couldn't give money that opened up other spaces for me to connect with more people who could be allies in my campaign, um, that's an awesome thing. And these women still show up in, in my work. They still are opening up the space for me to go to different business leader meetings, et cetera. But where I push and challenge is to the point that Tanisha just made, which is look around you. I always say that even on the council or any issue I'm discussing, 
who is in the room and who is at the table. Even if I'm talking about the issue of body cameras that I took on early on, it just can't be black people around the table talking about body cameras. We talk about the importance of technology in law enforcement and doing their jobs effectively. More stakeholders need to be at the table. So it's not just incumbent upon white women, since we're speaking about white women in particular, to look around the room and say, okay, wait a minute, we're in this woman's group, we meet monthly. Are we all white? Wait a minute. And to flag that and to say, what are we gonna do about that? Who's missing and how do we open up this space to include more women, regardless of not just race, sexual orientation, partisan back, whatever it is, political party. Um, but then we too, looking this way, as a black woman, need to also do the same thing. Um, there has been, and I'm gonna speak to this, sometimes it's not always us women of color supporting each other. Um, whether it's, you know, I've been hearing recently talking about the lack of diversity at our exam schools in the city of Boston. I'm a graduate of Latin school, love Latin school, but your numbers don't look good with respect to the, what the city of Boston's demographics look like. We have to do something better. And we couch that in the terms of Latinx students and African Americans. I'm like, well, wait a minute, Asian students too should be a part of this conversation. They're a subgroup. And if you break apart this Asian label, we will see that there are some Vietnamese students, for example, not performing as well as some of our African-American or black students and Latinx students, and that's a problem. But we miss that by just focusing on when we say people of color, black and brown students. And so I think it requires us to go deeper in our history, in the framework that we talk about in terms of race, racism, the way this democratic process was founded on excluding people by their skin color. I mean, that's deep work. And I, I will say why I'm co committed as council president to bringing the council through racial equity training so that we have the shared understanding of these differences and how it informs sort of the foundation. And so that we don't just call out, say, white women and say, yes, we need to do better. We all need to do better. Um, and I just name that. I mean, it's, it's hard work as an elected um, it can be very lonely sometimes. And I think if I, I can't be the only one sort of doing this self-reflection self when I go home at night. Um, I think others also need to do the same. Who is at your table? Who isn't at your table? Who's informing your decision? And even if you have a table that has all the right people there, and it's a rainbow coalition, do they have the power to inform the decision that is ultimately being made? Um, do they have the power to inform what will ultimately happen? And I see in government folks who are at the table but are not empowered. And many of them are people of color. Many of them are women who are undermined. We have to call that stuff out. Um, and we, in, in order to change that, we have to call that out as a collective and do our own work here and here. And I'm pushing the council to do here and here. And it's, it's not easy, but it's important. But you're doing it. Keiko, I'd love to hear what you have to say on this, and then I, I'm going to make a comment on our side of the aisle, but do you have any, uh, anything else to add to? Uh, these women are just so um, well-spoken as to what we need to be doing collectively. Um, I guess I would, I would include our, our, our male friends as well, yeah. of all colors, um, because we have allies in, in that space as well, and again the the what i heard what i heard you saying was that we're supposed to all be 
at the table. And we're supposed to be working on these issues together and looking around to see, to see who's missing and making sure that everyone is included. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that I got um, out of the book also was that um, Inez Mahalan said, how long must women wait for liberty? And I think that that's still really applicable today. And I'll say from the Republican female perspective, we always feel like we're on an island by ourselves because we're not welcome at the women's marches. And, and even though women say, oh yeah, we want all women, it's almost like Republican women aren't wanted there. And so I guess my challenge to everyone sitting here is, remember, we're all in this fight together. And so if you look at the president's speech and the, the Democratic members of Congress, female members of Congress were all in white, but the Republican women who are now whittled down to about 13 never got the memo. To wear white and I'm sure that they would have if they were invited in and so I think we need to invite men because we need to change we need to change attitudes how men perceive women in the workplace we see what just happened with the me too movement but I think it's also a tolerance of understanding that we want to have people on both sides of the aisle and to bring in women who may not think exactly how we think. But I think, you know, you see what happens in the, what's happening in the Democratic Party. It's like all the way to the left, to the middle. And the Republicans, we're just shrinking down. And we really want to see more women just as a whole be in there. And we want to partner. But I think it's it's if you want more voices at the table, we're, we're going to have to really include everyone and that including everyone just can't be one party and not the other. Agreed, absolutely. There's absolutely no way for us to move this country forward if we continue to be as polarized as we are today. Not gonna happen. So, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that is missing from my perspective is relationship. Um, being able to see the humanity and the person sitting across from you. I don't care, you know, what party they're affiliated with or not affiliated with. I, I could care less. What I want to know is what do you believe? I want to know what is in your heart. I want to know, can you see me? That's what I want to know. I, I could care less. You know, I'm wearing red today. <laughs> we it didn't have to see you, and it, you look great. It, it happens to be my favorite color. Walking, right, right. Just walking through the halls of Congress, they're like, "How? What? Yes." <laughs> um, you know. So, so, but truly, you know. And and I think you know, it's one of the things that I think we do a little bit better here in Massachusetts. I think that you know, than other parts of the country. Um, I, I think that we have an, a deep understanding of what bipartisanship looks like, um, what collaboration looks like, but most importantly, what relationship yes. looks like. You know, being able to sit down um, with someone to talk about an issue and to talk about potential solutions without getting caught up in who's proposing it per se, sometimes, but not all the time. Um, so yes, Jen, yes, yes, and yes. See, what you all don't know is that Jen and I are very good friends <laughs> and have been for like a very long time. I like count the years, many, 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 many years. And this is when she was president of the Republican Party. <laughs> Tanisha, you just blew one of my secrets whenever oh, I say, oh, Oops. Tanisha, and people are like, what? I'm like, mm, that's <laughs> one of my secret friendships. 
I like Je- keeping you in my back pocket Jen so we can bring you home. Right. Like, we've Jen- been friends forever. Jen and I are very good friends. Um, so we've had these conversations. But absolutely double downing on that. And, and we need to do more of it. And I, I, I always speak in systems terms, not uh, don't make it personal. Right. You know, these are systems that are failing us, right? Um, and the question is, how can we, particularly in government, talk about this governmental system um, as a system that has failed many, sometimes based on the zip code they, they, or the neighborhood they live in, the color of their skin, how they identify. Um, speaking to that in an honest way and then saying, okay, well then now what are we gonna do about it? And in order to take a system and sort of flip it upside down to show up differently, everyone needs to recognize we're all in the system. It may affect you differently, but you're in the system. And if it's failing a few, it's failing you too. And, and at a recent uh, undoing racism conference at the Fed, and power to the Fed, by the way, for holding this two and a half day conference. Um, so all the folks in the room, in, things you could be doing is bring your companies through racial equity trainings or undoing racism trainings, like this shared history, know about internment camps and all this in our country. It happened right here. You can't move forward if you don't know that history. So that's just a plug for, these are the concrete things you could be doing. But the Fed holds this incredible conversation and there was a black woman, frankly, there um, who does work in the philanthropy space who said, I'm done using the word white privilege. And she says, I'm gonna start using white oppression to demonstrate that this system of, say, racism also affects white people. Um, and whether, you, whether you know, you're the perpet- uh, sort of per- perpetrator um, or the racist, it has an effect on you, right? We're not born to hate or to, to, to murder or to kill. That has an effect on you. And so what would it mean to really talk about this system as of racism, for example, not only having an incredibly negative impact on communities of color, but also to say it's failing you too. And this is why you should care. And this is why you should show up to these conversations, learn a little bit more, and why you should be in the fight. Why it shouldn't just be black people showing up to fight racist, racism or racist. Why it shouldn't just be people of color. Why it should be all of us, and I think where we can do a better job in government is naming that, um, given what we've done, and specifically coming up with tangible examples to get Joe in Dorchester, my local Trump supporter, who's like, racism, we're past that, and I'm like, no, Joe, but let's have a conversation about why we're not past that. But Joe can't hear me if I'm just saying you're a racist. I need to say this system too, Joe, is failing you, and this is why and coming up with concrete examples because Joe too needs to be at the table because he's in my community, he's a part of my community. That's long-term work, that's hard work, that's deep work. And if we're serious, we have to be committed to that. That's hard work. I recognize that, hence why I love my job, I get to do it every day. Um, But why we need to pull everyone into this, um, not just us, right? Um, Everyone needs to be a part of it and at the table regardless of how you may personally identify. Well, ladies, I am getting the, the wrap-up signal from the Cracker Jack podcast crew. 
at Commonwealth and Mass Inc. But before we bring this thing to the into in for a landing, we have had some really exciting news in Boston these past 24 hours that the 2020 National NAACP <laughs> Convention, congratulations Tanisha Sullivan, is coming to Boston. There are a lot of layers to this onion, right? Boston has a complicated and uh, probably rightfully earned national reputation when it comes to race. And I think a lot of people were surprised, pleasantly surprised with this announcement. And I think it's going to mean uh, a lot of work for our lady in red <laughs> at the end of the panel. Do for you wanna, all of us. For all yeah. of us. Do you want to talk to us about what's coming next year, Tanisha? Sure, quickly. Um, so I want to preface what I have to say by with this. I am a Bostonian, um, generations of Bostonian, um, and, and love this city very deeply. Um, have seen some of its best days as well as some of its darkest. Um, that being said, you know, the, the National Convention is not um, something that we as a branch pursued as an opportunity. Um, it was brought to us, <laughs> um, but we ultimately supported it. <laughs> we ultimately supported it. Um, and I do think it is an opportunity. Um, and, you know, it's been interesting for me over the past 24, 36 hours to see the difference in the reaction. Um, kind of in my news feed. Yeah, some of you know that I'm new to Twitter. At Attorney Tanisha. Please follow me. I, she I will not be tweeting in code. I, I am on a mission. Um, it, it is, you know, I've been, I've been watching this thing, and it's been quite interesting to me to see how this cuts along race lines in the city. Um, I have found, generally speaking, that most white people are incredibly excited about this thing. You know, oh, my God, like, we, we've made it. Yes, racism is over, um, you know, and I contrast that with, you know, questions um, from people of color about, you know, I've gotten the, you know, why would they come here? Mm -hmm. um, and so what I say to that is there are, we are not the Boston of the 1930s, the 70s, the, or the 80s, right? There has been progress in this city, and we celebrate that, and we appreciate it. Um, at the same time, there are still very real issues and challenges in this city that cut across race lines. The data tells us that. That's not my opinion. That's what the data says. And so what I'm looking forward to um, is when it comes to this convention is Boston serving as a backdrop um, for some very real, meaningful conversations, deep conversations about race, racism, economic inequality um, in this city, educational inequity in this city. Um, and, and looking at it as an opportunity for us to delve deeper into those conversations, one. Two, looking at it as an opportunity for us to perhaps start to close some of those gaps with more than just proclamations and headlines and announcements, um, but with some meaningful initiatives that have tales, lasting tales, for the people who live in this city, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, those people who are living every day in the gap. And so with that, what I will say is that we're gonna have a fantastic time in Boston in 2020. I look forward to engaging this, the city as a whole. Um, but what we cannot do is party during this convention, 
and you know make it seem as if everything is great when we have young bodies dying in our streets in Roxbury and we have babies who can't read graduating from Boston Public Schools. So we have a lot of work to do and black mothers dying. So we have a lot of work to do, but this I believe will hopefully serve as a catalyst for the work that we will continue to do together in this city. Well, if anyone can do it, you can. And I will take the liberty of speaking for the room when I say we are, to the extent we can be of use, we are at your service. Um, with that, I would like to thank our fantastic panelists, Tanisha Sullivan, Andrea Campbell, Tina Cassidy, and Keiko Oral. Let's give them a round of applause. We would like to thank WeWork in Mass, Inc. and Commonwealth, and we would like to thank all of you, our amazing audience, to whom we are not related in any way, which is very exciting for I, us. I did take some pictures so that way I could send them to our moms. Excellent. They'll be so excited. And, and I just want to say that, you know, in, in what we're what we were talking about in women working together. Remember, Jesse's a Democrat, I'm a Republican. And I've worked in Republican administrations and she's worked in Democrat administrations. So, you know, we're living proof of Republicans and Democrats working together for- Despite our best judgment, we actually <laughs> like each other. <laughs> we just don't talk about certain issues, but, um, you know, and I also wanna point out, there's also someone else in the audience who is a Democrat and I absolutely adore her and she has actually worked for me and she currently works in the Cambridge City Council, but Liana was a product of the UMass Women in Leadership Program at Amherst, and she was my mentee. And so we had worked together as, as she was my mentee, and then I hired her to work for me, and she is definitely on the other side of the aisle from me, but she showed me that she was a shining light, that she was smart and hardworking. And to me, it didn't matter what party she was from. All it mattered was I found a young woman who needed an opportunity. And I said, this is a great opportunity to lift her up and let her succeed and go do something. So I will say to all of you, the one thing you should be doing is finding people who are in generations behind you, who need a leg up, regardless of their race, or their gender, or their sexual orientation, and give them a hand and show them an opportunity, because it leads to opening doors. And, you know, one day could be like Liana and in her young career, but, you know, building a great resume already. Tina Cassidy, you'll be signing books and selling them in the back of the room. Excellent. And, and showing people your beautiful manicure. And, and, Ke and Keiko now needs to go home to Norm and explain why we were talking about white dudes in the state house. <laughs> we're not picking on you. Replace one good one with another good one. You just don't have the same parts, but that's okay. Oh, my goodness. And with that, thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Thank you.